All right, if you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews in the seventh chapter. Hebrews chapter 7, I ask you to join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. And um, we just pray that uh, Christ would be honored as we approach His Word. Hebrews chapter 7, starting again at verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Let's pray. Lord, there is much here to be gleaned and much to be understood, but Father, there is also much to be misunderstood. So grant to us wisdom that we might hear truth, that we might understand truth correctly. I pray, God, that you would open my mouth with truth and with words of wisdom, Father, that you have given. I pray that you would let all falsehood and all misunderstanding be taken away from me. And I pray, God, that um, you would let your word be planted deep in our hearts, that you would allow that everything we do and everything we say would be faithful to your word and faithful to Christ. And I pray, God, that as your word is planted in us, that it would bear fruit according to righteousness. I pray, Father, that the dead would live and that the living would grow, and that Christ would be honored by all. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are finishing up this passage. I think following this morning I'm ready to move on, but I reserve the right to change my mind. (laughs) Um. The eternal nature of Christ gives him power and authority that no one can ever hope to equal. And and we see that laid out in this description of Melchizedek. Um, And we're focusing on the last part of verse 3 when it says, um, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. The truth of the matter is that all other authorities are false, because nobody else has the access to God that Christ does, being God made flesh. Any other who claims to have access to God is lying. They're lying to themselves, they're lying to their followers. Only Jesus Christ can bring us to God. He alone is the way to the Father. John 14, 6 says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Those are Jesus' words. So if you're going to believe Jesus, then all other religions are false, period. Either Jesus was right or Jesus was wrong. If he was wrong, then we need to be doing something different with our lives. If he was right, then it doesn't leave us any room for equivocation. It doesn't leave us any path by which we can say, well, Jesus is a way to the Father and being faithful to some other religion is also a way to the Father. Jesus himself did not leave that option open. The simple truth that flows out of this idea is that we have to relate to God through him, or we do not relate to God at all. So if you do not know who Christ is, if you are not connected intimately to Jesus, then you have no fellowship with the Father whatsoever. 
You have no course, no path to get to God, and you have no relationship with God that is not rooted and founded in the person of Jesus Christ. You do not have the divine inside of you that would allow you to find some other path to God. It doesn't exist. No other prophet or priest will ever be able to teach you an alternate road to find peace with God because it is only through Jesus Christ that peace with God exists. Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is the result of Jesus' priesthood and the glory that belongs to him alone. And he will not share that with another. So when we look at the book of Hebrews, and it's talking about Melchizedek and about the priesthood of Christ being shown in Melchizedek and fulfilled in Christ, one of the things that we find early on here is that it describes this Melchizedek, and I think Melchizedek was, again, a pre-incarnate Christ. It finds him described as without the beginning of days. Without the beginning of days. In other words, he has no start. He has no beginning. Now, there's not really a whole lot of room to have no start without being divine. There's not really a whole lot of room for you to be without a beginning um, unless you yourself are uncreated. And the only uncreated being in all of creation is God. So I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. And I want to think through with you some implications about what it means that he is without a beginning of days. So make sure to hold your place in Hebrews. We're going to come back, but we're going to do some jumping around this morning. I say that like it's not every Sunday. <laughs> Colossians chapter 1. Um, Colossians chapter 1, we're going to read from verse 15 to verse 18. And uh, Paul writes this. He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. So Paul, speaking directly about Christ, speaks about Christ being before all things. Again, having no beginning of days. And this gives him a supremacy in time. Now you think about this with me for a minute. That which comes first is... The source. Everything flows out of that thing which was first. Something had to be first. And that first thing is God himself. In John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus prays, Father, glorify me together with you with the glory that I had before, the glory that I had with you before the world was. So before anything was created, before anything was fashioned, before God ever said, let there be light, God existed in perfect glory and in perfect community within the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were completely satisfied in the relationship that they had with themselves, full unto overflowing. They did not create out of a sense of need. God was not lonely. 
God did not say to himself, gee, I wish I had somebody to play with, let's make a creation. He created out of the overflow of who he is so that we might be blessed with the glory of knowing him. Creation is a gift to us because God is our life. And it comes out of this idea that God is first. Being first, he is supreme over all things. He owns them having created them. He owns them having imagined them. And he owns them because he sustains them by himself. Again, in Colossians, it says that he is before all things and in him all things consist. Everything holds together because Christ actively holds it together by the singular act of his omnipotent sovereign will. You want to have a conversation where somebody with a really big degree goes, ask them what makes atoms stick together. They'll tell you atomic cohesion, but they don't know what that means. You see, at the heart of every atom are protons, neutrons, and electrons. And protons are positively charged, and those things which are positively charged don't like each other and repel. You take the positive end of a magnet and the positive end of a magnet, and you try to put them together. What happens? They, they don't want to go together because positives repel. Well, all of these positively charged protons in the center of an atom clump together, and they don't really know why. To complicate it just a little bit, swinging around all of these atoms are negatively charged electrons. Now, we know that positive and negative like each other. So what makes the electrons not crash into the core of the... They don't know. They're not really really quite sure. But Paul, in his ancient simplistic knowledge, tells us exactly what it is. It's Jesus. The force that binds everything together in the universe is the singular act and the singular will of a sovereign God. God keeps you intact. So, pause for a moment and consider what power and what right and what authority that gives him. Not only did he create you, but he actively sustains you. He didn't make you and then wind you up and cast you off into the universe so that he's no longer responsible for you. The functioning of your body, the functioning of your mind, the actual things that make you who you are, are products of the will and the purpose of God in your life. You owe him everything that is. And owing him everything that is, is directly born out of the fact that he is the source of everything that is. This is his right as sovereign over his creation. This is his right as the source of his creation. He is sovereign and supreme in time, which also means that he is supreme and sovereign in authority. Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 says, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, those of heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. So if he has the power and he has the original essence of what it is to make you, he also has in that the right to determine what your life should be. The purpose that drives everything is not ours to make up. 
The purpose that drives the world is not ours to make up. The purpose that drives the world is contained in that same singular act of the sovereign will of God that created everything. He made it for a purpose. He made it so that your purpose in Him could be fulfilled by His working in your life. And that means that everything that happens is contained inside of that act of God's omnipotent will. So just think with me, we can take one thing out of history and we can consider it how the scripture describes it. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Let's think for a moment about the crucifixion of Christ and what the scripture tells us in regards to the purpose and the reason. Acts chapter 2, verse 23 says, Him, Jesus, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands. You have crucified him and put him to death. Skip down to verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. In Acts chapter 4, verses 10 10 to 12 said, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God has raised up from the dead. By him, this man stands here before you whole. This stone, which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So what we see here is that in spite of the fact that men crucified Jesus for their own reasons lawless hands acting out according to their own evil desires, their evil desires were not only incorporated, but were intended by God. It's hard for us to get our head around this. It's hard for us to process these things. But it's easiest to see it right here in the midst of something which is so obviously plainly good. The death of Jesus is the payment for our sins. It is our opportunity to know God. It is supremely good for us that Jesus was willing to die in our place to endure the wrath of God and to bear the punishment that grants us life. But it does not leave the people who committed this crime, and it was a crime, guiltless. You see, so often we try to blame God for the things that happen and to say, well, it's, it's God's fault, I had nothing to do with it. But that's, it's true, but it's not true. God got his way. God always gets his way. But those who commit sin are guilty for their sin. They will bear the cost of their rebellion. And so what we see here is that even though God grants to us the free agency to do the things that are in us to do, we are responsible for our sin, and yet God's will is never thwarted. And it's it's true about everything that happens, because God is sovereign over his creation. There is no part of our lives in which God is not actively working to fulfill the full and whole counsel of his omnipotent will. Ephesians 1 tells us that he works all things according to his purpose, which he intended in Christ before the world began. Every single thing is worked together according to his intention. Now, this could not happen if things were happening before Jesus existed. Does that make sense? 
This could not happen if Jesus was a latecomer to the game. This could not happen if God was a latecomer to the game. Because God is the originator of it, without beginning of days and without anything preceding Him, and He created all things according to the counsel of His will, then the fullness of everything that happens is directly derived from His sovereignty and directly derived from His preeminence over all things. And in the course of time, there is nothing in which God has to deal with which He did not not only know, but plan, intend, and execute. Okay? There's no part of our lives, no part of our world, no part of the universe that God Himself did not actively put into place. He doesn't have to deal with anything going on that's like, oh, I didn't think about that. Oh my goodness, look, the Borg have suddenly appeared. How do we handle that? That's not how it works. God made everything, He planned everything. He brought all of the components together and he put them in motion to fulfill his singular act of glorifying Christ as the redeemer of his people. So that we might know him. And so that we might know him as a redeeming God, full of mercy and grace. Which is why God didn't make a world that didn't fall. He could have. But had he made a world that didn't fall, we would never know the greatest part of his heart. We would never know what it is to be redeemed. We would never understand how much God is love. The world had to happen the way that it happened. And because God is preeminent over all of it, because Jesus is preeminent over all of it, because he is the source of the fullness of it, and no part of it did not spring from him, then he is in absolute control over all of it. It all is his. There is no part which is exempted from that. He is supreme in his purpose. He is also, therefore, without end of life. If he is the source of all things, then nothing is strong enough to undo him. Make sense? He's greater than all. He is without beginning, and he is without end. And if he is without end, then he is absolutely endless in his rule. In other words, the supremacy and the sovereignty of God over all things and the supremacy and the sovereignty of Christ over all things will never come to an end, despite our government's best efforts. Despite the best efforts of all of the best human heads in all of creation that proclaim loudly, God is dead, we killed him, I say to them, phooey. Prove it. Prove it. Prove that God doesn't exist. Give me evidence. Not that you can. Because in the end, nothing is strong enough to end God. All things come from him. All things are less than him. And that includes time itself. Time is a construct God made for us so that we could process life in a way that makes sense. God is not a part of time. God is not constrained by time. God is not owned by time. And time is not something that God cannot dabble with if he chooses to. In fact, we have several places in Scripture where God stopped time or reversed time. There are places in Scripture where an entire day went by and the sun didn't move so that Israel could finish mopping up their enemies. 
There's an account in Scripture where God caused the sun to move backwards in the sky. So the shadow moved backwards to give a king a promise that he, that he was going to live another 15 years. Time is God's slave. It's not his master. He created it. And since he created it, it will never come to an end for him. He will one day end it. Which is why Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God alone who is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That word eternal means what? Everlasting. Everlasting. But we think of eternity as not ending way out there. It also includes without beginning. To be eternal is to be completely outside of the scope of time, without beginning, without end, and without limit. And I want you to pay attention to how Paul describes it. He says, unto the king eternal. That means that God has been king for all of eternity and will be king for all of eternity. His authority and his rule and his kingship will never end. It is the glory of God to rule over his creation, and he is absolutely endless in his rule because he is without an end. And that also means then that his rule and his person is endless in scope. Revelation chapter 19, verse 16, speaking about Jesus, says this, He has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of most things and Lord of a lot. Is that what it says? No, King of kings and Lord of lords. He is king over all things and Lord of all creation. There is absolutely none who has authority over him. There is nothing outside of the purview of his rule and authority. It doesn't matter whether you accept his rule or not. He is still God. He is still king. He is still Lord. He is still master. It doesn't matter whether you acknowledge this, whether you believe it, whether you accept it, whether you proclaim it, whether you deny it. doesn't change it. You do not have the power to alter who God is. No one does. And all of creation could gather together under one banner and say, we reject God, we refuse to obey him, God is no longer our king. And God would say, yeah, right. If you enjoy reading Greek mythology, there was always this constant war going on between men and the gods. They always wanted to cast the gods down from their throne in Olympus. And they tried and they warred. And in some stories, they gained victory. But let me tell you the truth. It never happens in a real god. God has never lost anything in his life. He has never, ever lost even a single battle. He is God over all. He is king over all. He is Lord over all. And every single king who exists gives homage to him whether they acknowledge it or not. The Bible tells us that God turns the hearts of kings wherever he will. Like a river running in its course, he turns their hearts, he directs them to do what they do. Which should give us hope. Because right now there's a lot of really foolish kings on the earth. There's a lot of really foolish presidents and really foolish prime ministers and really foolish people who think they have a whole lot of power. And we are often guilty of of finding despair and saying, oh my goodness, what will we do? We need to remember that these things are happening because God is on his throne and he's governing his creation. And instead of getting into despair, we need to look at these days with hope and ask ourselves, Lord, how will you have me respond? And how will you have me preach the gospel in the midst of these days? 
Because we've been given a calling and we've been given a purpose. And despair has no place in us. Hopelessness has no part in us because we serve the king who is king. Which means then that our king is also, because he is without end of life, endless in his impact. Hebrews chapter 10 Verses 8 and following says this, Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offering for sin, you did not desire nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. What does this mean? It means that Jesus' work on our behalf has more power than sin. It sanctifies us. It cleanses us. It purifies us. And it occurs once for all because his impact in what he does is beyond all of our understanding. There is nothing strong enough to keep you from God if you have been washed in the blood of Christ. There is no sin which you have ever committed which will stop God from loving you. No sin you ever could commit, which will stop God from loving you if you are found in Christ. It's important for us to recognize this because this is our hope and this is our comfort and this is our stability. You see, we often fall prey to fear and doubt and worry. We think, oh my goodness, these things are going to rise up and these things are going to harm me and therefore I have to react in ways that I may not like or others may not like because these things are happening. Beloved, hear me, these things don't change who you are in Christ. They have no power to transform you. They have no power to alter you in any way. You are found in Christ because of Christ's work and not yours. You are found in Christ because He chose you. You are found in Christ because He loved you. You are found in Christ because He called you out of death and into life. He breathed life into your dead flesh and made you live so that you would love Him, so that you would repent of your sins, so that you would be found in Him. And it's His work from start to finish. It's His work that begins it, and it's His work that sustains it. Remember, He is outside of the scope of all power, and outside the scope of all time, and outside the scope of all influence. And what He intends to do from the beginning, He will accomplish. His impact, then, is beyond all understanding or comprehension. It is endless. He completed and set aside the law, the writer of Hebrews tells us. And he satisfied the purposes of God. So if God's purpose was to save a people, and Jesus satisfied the purpose of God, then has a people been saved? Amen. A people has been saved. And this people who have been saved are the people that God intended to save. And it saves and sanctifies them forever. Again, verse 10. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And it eternally transforms how we relate to God. Prior to being saved, we were not just not part of God. We were actively opposed to Him. We were His enemies. Prior to being saved, before God changed your heart, you hated God. And there was nothing in the world that you would rather do than defy Him and go your own way and do whatever it is that God did not want you to do. Period. That's all of us. 
Every single one of us, prior to our salvation, were enemies of God, but now we are His children. Prior to our salvation, we hated Him. Now we love Him. Prior to our salvation, we were evil of intention, opposed to everything good, but now we have been made righteous. Prior to our salvation, we were guilty in the sight of God, deserving of punishment, worthy of wrath, and under the just and holy condemnation of a righteous God. But now, found in Christ, we are forgiven. We are cleansed. We are made whole. We are accepted. We are counted as sinless. In fact, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that we have become the very righteousness of God in Christ. That's a transformation that boggles the imagination. Prior to our salvation, we were dead. And not only were we dead, but we were aiming and running with everything in us towards eternal death, ultimate separation from God. But now we have been given life everlasting. And all of these things have been accomplished by the faithful obedience of Jesus Christ to the will of God. Not the circumstances that controlled him, not to the will of man, not to the desire of people, but to the purpose of God, which Jesus and God and the Spirit determined before anything began to accomplish in themselves. The covenant of eternity is God's determination to do what God is willing to do. And the fullness of everything that we find in this life is a result of that. This is what it means that he is without end of days. It also means that he is endless in worth. Look at Revelation chapter 5 with me. Revelation chapter 5 is such a beautiful picture of Christ as he is displayed in heaven. We'll start at verse 8. Jesus has just taken the scroll, and it says, When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard in the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousands and thousands of thousands, all saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing, and every creature which is on the earth, which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. And the, 20, and the four living creatures said amen, and the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. And beloved, as powerful and as beautiful and as precious as that picture is, it doesn't come close to what he deserves. As powerful and as beautiful and as precious as that picture is, it doesn't come close to what we will actually experience for all of eternity, giving praise and honor and glory and and acknowledging the worth of the Christ who redeemed us. He is worthy of endless honor, and he is worthy of endless praise because he himself is endless in worth. 
You can never get to the end of just how precious Jesus is. You can't do it. And so when, when somebody tells you, well, you know, I love God, but I'm so tired of you Christians talking about Jesus. You need to understand, first of all, they don't love God. And second of all, they don't know who Jesus is. And third of all, if they had any inkling whatsoever, they would shut their mouths and not say such foolish things. Because if we know who Christ is, if we've experienced him, if we've tasted that the Lord is good, there's nothing else in the world we'd rather speak of. There's nothing else in the world that is ever worth speaking of, really. Well, there are things we have to speak of and things that come up now and then, but what, what is worth dwelling on if it's not Christ? Christ and Christ alone deserves our praise, and Christ and Christ alone deserves the fullness of our intention. We're told that he was made like unto the Son of God. Now, what does it mean that he was made like the Son of God? Well, Let's look again at the Scripture and let the Scripture define for us what we need to understand. John chapter 5, verse 18. Jesus has just said that He is the Son of God. I want to just read you the response of the Jews. Verse 18. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill Him, because He not only broke the Sabbath, but He also said that God was His Father, making Himself equal with God. So for Jesus to declare that he was the son of God, to say that he was a son, that God was his father, in the mind of the Jew, this was him saying, I am equal to God. It's important that you understand that, and I'm not trying to belabor a minor point. They were ready to stone him for saying this. Because they understood how that comes from God himself. God being the source, the Son, coming out of the Father in that way. And they were ready to kill him because Christ had just declared himself to be equal to God. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, he says this, Let this mind be in you which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. Now, what does it mean he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God? Well, let me give you a picture. Maybe this will help. If I go out to my shop, and I take my hammer, and go someplace with my hammer, and do something, have I just stolen my hammer? Why? Because it's mine. Right? So why would Jesus not consider it robbery to be equal with God? Because he was equal with God, right? This is something that is his. He owns it. It's his prerogative. And it's also something he didn't need to grasp, is how the, the, the um, King James renders it. It's not something to be grasped, I believe, is the exact phrasing. And that means that he, he wasn't worried about losing it by setting aside his glory. He wasn't worried that that it was going to slip out of his grasp and he was going to suddenly cease to be who he was or become less than he was by by becoming a man and and putting humanity on. It, It didn't diminish Christ to become one of us. In fact, if it were possible, it made him more. 
We need to recognize the truth that Christ is God in the flesh. So when it says that he was made like unto the Son of God, it means that he was displayed as equivalent. He was displayed as equal with God. He had absolute equality with God. So when Jesus says something about God, it is authoritative because it is the self-revelation of God. So let's come back to John 14, 6, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me. You need to understand that Jesus saying these words, it is God saying these words. This is the self-revelation of God himself declaring to us, you can try all you want, but I will allow no one to come to me except through the person and the path of my son. That's my path and my way, and I am the one who invented it, and that is the only one that I will acknowledge. And you can take that even further, and you can say that not only will God not acknowledge those other religions, but he will actively thwart them. And so those who pursue him in some way not honoring Christ will find themselves fighting against God, whether they like it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not, whether they say, yes, this is the case or not. They are actively warring against heaven itself, actively warring against God himself. Beloved, we need to recognize this truth. And as followers of Christ, we need to be unapologetic about declaring that Jesus is the only way to come to the Father. And we have to say this because it's what Jesus himself said. But we also have to say this if we love people at all. Because every other way that they try to come to him is a lie. Every other way that they try to please God is absolutely false. And if we care about them at all, we're not content to let them ruin themselves by their imaginations. If we care for them at all, we want to see them understand truth. Because what's at stake is eternity. What's at stake is judgment. What's at stake is hell itself. Being made like unto the Son of God also means absolute perfection in nature. So look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 11. He himself gave some to be apostles and some prophets some evangelists and some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, until we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love, We might grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth in the body for the edifying of itself in love. So what we see here is that the perfection of Christ is so profound that imitation of him is the only possible mark of perfection that exists. Growing up into the likeness of Christ is the fullness of our stature as human beings. 
If you are not growing into the likeness of Christ, you are not only less than you should be as a Christian, you are not what you ought to be as a human being. Mankind was created to reflect the image of God. We were made as image bearers. At the very beginning, God said, let us make man how? In our image. We were created to bear the mark and the impress and the image of God himself. He stamped us out according to his own design and according to his own being and his own nature. It doesn't mean that God is a bipedal mammal who looks like us. It means that the very essence of how we commune and create and and think and act and are, these are the things that God made and these are the things that God wanted to make us like. Having a creative nature, having a creative spark, having dominion over the earth, all of these things are part of the creation mandate to bear the image of God. But they've all been corrupted by sin. As followers of Christ, we've been given the opportunity to grow back into the grace of following after him and beginning to bear again the image of God in truth and in dignity. And everything that God does in our lives drives us together. The whole church, together collectively, is the manifestation of His perfection. So when church is done right, when church is about Christ instead of about gossip, when church is about Christ instead of about role-playing, when church is about Christ instead of about all the little things that fill up churches all over the place, then the church becomes the very image of Christ made manifest. And how we interact together and how we love one another and how we shore up one another's weaknesses and how we cover over one another's shame. These things are what make a church function. These things are what make a church beautiful. These things are what make a church bear the image of Christ. And in the end, he is presenting us before the Father in the perfection of the fullness of his image. So Jesus is at work in us and in the body of Christ, manifesting himself as us, upon us individually and manifesting himself upon us collectively. And the work that he's doing, he is presenting to the Father and saying, here is the image that we've created in this body. Beloved, that's a glorious work. And that is a wonderful thing for us to be participating in as human beings. Absolutely, he is presenting this. And this also means then that as a son of God, he has absolute perfection in understanding what the Father desires. Jesus isn't running around going, hmm, I wonder if this will please Dad. He knows. He knows because he himself is God, but he also knows because in the relationship, somehow that makes very little sense to us, it it drives us into weird things when we start to think too deeply about it. But there was a sense in which God was communicating his ongoing desire to Christ. In fact, Jesus put it this way. In John chapter 5, verse 20, he said, The Father loves the Son, And shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these, so that you may marvel. You see, Jesus knew what God desired. But he also had to learn some things as a man. Now this is where my mind really starts to get all wonky. Because the idea that Jesus learned, that that he had to grow in any way, it just blows my head up. But Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, it said, It was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in, many, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. So Jesus somehow had to be perfected through his sufferings as a man, but he had to be perfected through his sufferings as a man because he is the captain of our salvation. 
So in order to be the captain of our salvation, he had to be made like unto us. But he had to be made like unto us without sin itself. He couldn't be tainted by sin, because if Jesus were tainted by sin, then the only death that would serve would be his own serving for his own punishment. He could no longer be qualified to die for our sins if he had his own to pay for. But somehow, he had to be made like unto us. And so what God and Jesus determined in the plan of all things is the right way to become like unto us is to suffer what we suffer. And Hebrews 5.10 says, Having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Just think about that for a moment. He's perfect in nature, already complete. He knows fully everything that God desires because he is God. God has revealed everything to him. And yet, they knew before anything began that they had to perfect Christ through suffering. And that having been perfected, he now saves all of us to the uttermost. What glory this is. What an amazing thing our God has done in sending Christ to die in our place. How precious is his name. Why would we speak of anything else? truth is this. Everything that God did, He did to display Christ. Now this also means that He has been given all of the authority that ever was and that ever will be. Again, I'll quote Jesus Himself. When He returned from the grave and He was leaving the earth to go up back into heaven, He said to His disciples in Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority in heaven and in earth, has been given to me. Now often we quote the second two things that he said, verses 19 and 20, go therefore, teach all nations, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have taught you, and lo, I'm with you always to the ends of the earth. But the Great Commission, which I just messed up and I got part of it backwards, but anyway, the Great Commission is predicated on the authority that has been granted to Christ as supreme over all things. He had the authority that was his as creator. He had the authority that was his as sustainer. But now he has the authority as king who has died and been raised and as the captain of our salvation because he has been perfected through his sufferings. And the authority that has been granted to him is the final knot in all of it which allows us to rest in the confidence that our God has saved us and that our Christ is eternally our priest. He is a priest continually according to the will and the perfection of God. This is an ongoing perfected work. It is without cessation and it is without change. So the writer of Hebrews says, having neither beginning of days nor end or beginning of days nor end of days, he is a priest continually according to the will of God. In other words, this work of Jesus making certain that we who are his will be saved is never going to be threatened. It cannot be stopped. It cannot be altered. It cannot be ended. He has the power to forgive and the right to forgive. When he was still on the earth, he demonstrated this. There was an instance in which one man, having been paralyzed and he had four friends that really loved him, thought that it would be a good idea to cut a hole in Simon Peter's roof and lower their friend into the midst of where Jesus was teaching because they couldn't get near him for the crowds. 
And Jesus, looking at the friends and seeing their faith, said to the man, your sins are forgiven. Now, if I was those friends, not understanding any more than I understand, I would have been ready to jump through the hole and kill myself because Peter was not a man to be trifled with. We've just created a real problem for ourselves, and Jesus missed the point. We didn't ask him to forgive our friend's sins. We wanted him to heal his body so he could go out and make a living and support his family. This is madness. Why do you not understand these things, Jesus? But the Pharisees who were gathered around were angry. And they're thinking to themselves, this is blasphemy. For no one can forgive sins but God alone. And that's where we're going to pick it up. Matthew chapter 9, verse 4. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, Arise and take up your bed and go to your house. You see what he did? You see, if Jesus had just said, I forgive your sins and walked away, the man would not have known he was forgiven and the people there would not have known that Jesus had the right to forgive. If the man had simply been healed, I heal you, get up and go, the same thing would have been. But what Jesus did was to pose them a question and then give them an answer that they could not refute. I pose you the question, which one's easier to say? Is it easier for me to say, your sins are forgiven, or take up your bed and walk? I can say your sins are forgiven, and you can't prove otherwise. But if I say, take up your bed and walk, and you're not healed, guess what I am? I'm a liar. I'm a false prophet. I deserve to be drug outside and stoned. And Jesus said, I'm doing it this way so that you may know that I have the power, have the right, have the authority to forgive sins. Get up. And the Bible tells us that the man jumped up, took up his bed, and went walking and leaping and praising God. See, in the end, Jesus has always had the authority to forgive sins. God has the authority to forgive sins absent of a sacrifice of Christ. If he wanted to, he could. But he chose not to do that because it would not have been righteous. He chose not to forgive our sins, not to just poo-poo them away and say, oh, it doesn't really matter. Ollie, ollie, all in free. doesn't matter. Everybody goes to heaven. That would not have been righteous. Instead, what God did was to satisfy his own wrath and to pay the punishment and to bear the punishment so that our sins could be righteously forgiven. You see, Jesus has always had the authority. He's always had the authority to save everybody who is under his care. Hebrews 7.25 says, Therefore he also is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He's able to intercede forever to everyone who is his own, because he is never without access to the Father. He and his Father are one. He has completed himself. He has no need of any other to make intercession for him. 
So you do not need to go talk to Jesus' mommy to get him to do something for you. You don't need to go talk to a saint to, to have Jesus perform something for you. You don't need to talk to those people to have God do anything for you. For Christ alone is our access. The Bible tells us in Timothy that there is only one God and one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ. Nobody else has that kind of access to God. In fact, nobody has any access to God apart from Christ. He has no need of anybody else to grant him access, and he has no one, he needs nobody else to teach him how to know and to honor God. This means that he is a priest not only continually, but eternally. The natural and consistent outflow of all of this is that Christ has been a priest for all of eternity. Because the plan and the will of God to save a people always had Christ as the priest at the center of it. It was always about redeeming a people. It was always about the work of Christ. And this is why the book of Revelations tells us this. Look at verse thir- chapter 13, verse 8. Revelation, chapter 13, just one verse. But I want you to see it. All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life. And that's speaking about the beast. Everybody who's here who's not saved is going to worship the beast. But the second half of this verse says, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. What does that mean? It means that before the world was forged, before anything was done, Christ in the will and the mind and the purpose of God was already intended to be slain. Which means, in the will and the mind and the purpose of God, he was slain. He was a priest before anything ever was. Slain before the foundation of the world. And not only was he the priest, he was also the sacrifice. He has always been the one who allows access to the Father. His priesthood is both earned and inherent. He earned it as a man coming and fulfilling the role and bearing the punishment and obeying the law but it is also inherently in him because he is God. He has the right to grant access to himself. This is part of who he is. This is part of his nature. It's in his very nature to be the leader of all worship of God. And since eternity is inclusive in both eternity past and eternity future, he is the only priest that we will ever need, and he is the only priest that we have ever had, and he is the only priest that we will ever have. There will be no other, there are no others, there never have been any others. Even in the Old Testament, when the priests were doing their thing and they were the ones who were visibly giving access to the Father, it was Christ in them which granted that authority. And over and over and over again throughout the Levitical law, we see Christ shown. We see Christ foreshadowed. And it's been good for my soul, at least, as we've been reading through the Old Testament, to see all of the places in Leviticus and Numbers where we see Christ. And in Deuteronomy, we're going to see Christ again. We continue to see Christ displayed. We continue to see Christ foreshown. And all of this should give us praise and glory for the one who has been our priest eternally because no other can ever be a priest like him. 
Nobody else could ever be this priest. Nobody else has the raw materials. Nobody else has the the, the ability. Nobody else has the power. No one else could be the priest that we need. So, beloved, I beg you, do not share his glory in your mind with another. Do not grant any space to anybody or anyone or anything that belongs to Christ. It's His, and it's His alone. And we must acknowledge this, and we must fight for this. Because it is the nature of sin at its core to take what is God's and make it our own. That's the essence of sin. To take that which belongs to God and say, no, I want that for me. That's mine. God, you can find your own toys. I want this one. That's sin. But what Scripture tells us is that God will not share His glory with another. So I beg you, give to God what is His. Give Him the worship and the glory and the honor. Give Him the praise. Give Him the attention. Give Him the fullness of everything that you are. Because nothing else deserves that. And nothing else can give you anything in return. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace in this day, and I pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we would understand just how glorious and magnificent it is that you have become our priest. Father, I pray that you would make us mindful also of the fact that having not only become our priest, you always were our priest by nature of who you are. God, it's a lot for us to dwell, a lot for us to take in. Grant clarity, grant understanding, and I pray, Lord, that you would take this poor effort of mine to unpack deep and wonderful things And bless it with your own spirit. Grant understanding. Grant clarity. And grant truth in the uttermost parts. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. That his glory might be made much. Amen.